Well, amen. Jesus, Messiah, the Lord of all. John Piper wrote somewhere that uh, if you bring a, a rake and scratch the surface, you'll just get leaves. But if you bring a shovel and do some digging, you'll get gold. How many of y'all brought a shovel this morning? Because we're in the book of Job, and there's gold, but you got to mine it. So open your Bibles to the book of Job. You can just open into the middle. You'll probably be in the Psalms, and then just turn left. And the, the book right before the book of Psalms is the book of Job. We're going to cover all of four chapters this morning. We're going to go from Job 7 sorry, Job 4 through Job 7, so 4, 5, 6, 7. It's a lot. We're going to move fast, but there's absolute gold in them, their hills, okay? And uh, so just to shape our theology, our thinking, our view of Jesus, um, get ready to dig in. You guys okay with that? Can I ask you for that commitment this early on a Sunday morning? Okay, good. You will not be disappointed Every time you open the book, you're face-to-face with God. Amen? Every time you open the book, you're face-to-face with God. So remember that uh, Job uh, probably takes place somewhere between Noah and Abraham before Israel was a nation. So Job and his friends are not Jews. They're not following the Mosaic law. They're probably, well, they are deists. They have some sense of the almighty God over all all other supernatural or divine beings. Uh, those ones that we were introduced to in the first two chapters of the book. And uh, Job probably lived in the land of Edom, which is probably somewhere in northern Saudi Arabia, maybe just kind of the south end of uh, the Jordan there. Uh, The land that would be given to Esau uh, much later. You remember Jacob and Esau? And, And Jacob is the son of promise, and Esau goes somewhere else, and he loses his birthright. To carelessness, he loses his blessing because his heel grabber brother Jacob, that's what Jacob means, heel grabber, uh, went and stole it from him. And so he moved on to this land of Edom. Job's friends probably live a little bit northeast of there. They're probably coming about 100 miles uh, to see Job. And they were probably wealthy, respected rulers like Job. So it was, you know, I guess birds of a feather, right? And this is, this is a book that's, that's hard to read for a couple of different reasons. The first reason that it's hard to read is because it's Hebrew poetry. And we've put it into English, and our brains want to do things with the words and the grammar that the book doesn't do. So it's hard to read for that. But it's put into poetry. It's this great big epic poem because poetry helps uh, remember helps us remember things. There's a little bit of rhythm and meter. It's, it's why songs stick. It's why the idea that, well, I don't listen to the lyrics, I just listen to the beat, or I like the beat, is ridiculous. So this is Hebrew poetry. It also is difficult to read because it's wisdom literature, along with Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And, and wisdom literature deals with how the world works. And its purpose according to Proverbs 1, 2, and 3, 
That's chapter one, verse two and three, not one, chapters one through three. The purpose of wisdom literature is so that the reader might know wisdom and instruction, might understand words of insight, receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. So that's what wisdom literature is all about. It's supposed to make us wise. We're going to find out that we can use wisdom literature in a very foolish way, but that's to come. So Job is a book of wisdom. We're looking for wisdom here as we get, this is why we can't bring rakes and rake for leaves. We actually have to do some work. We have to do some digging here because we're mining for wisdom. Wisdom is, is about applying knowledge well. You've heard that knowledge is power. That's not true. Applied knowledge is power. And correctly pl- applied knowledge is constructive power. And so wisdom is about applying knowledge well to love God and to love others well. So Job is an epic poem, kind of like uh, Homer's Iliad or Odyssey or, um, or uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. If, has, any, has anybody ever read any uh, epic poetry? Can I see a show of hands just so I know who I'm talking to? Okay, y'all got a lot of homework to do. I'm going to sign that. So go grab a copy of John Milton's Paradise Lost and read that this week. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Uh, and, and, uh, and, it, and it really tells a story that's intended to give us wisdom, okay? Not unlike Jesus' parables. Jesus, Jesus told stories that were meant to impart wisdom. And the interesting thing is, some people didn't get it. Because wisdom is not for everybody. And the things of God are not for everybody, but that's a different sermon. The other thing with the book of Job is it answers a major existential question. Can faith that comes from God faith that is in God, and love for God overcome human sight that is tempted to say that God is not good? In other words, can a weak human, uh, a finite human, love God and cling to him when there appears to be no evidence that he's good? We don't love people and things that aren't good. And so can we hear God's word and receive that and love God even when it looks like there is no evidence for his goodness. This was actually the adversary's position in the first chapter. He went to God and he said, Job's faith is fatally flawed and he will reject you if you take his stuff. So this morning we're gonna carry on this story. We're gonna see another way that Job's faith was assaulted where he was actually attacked by a friend who in all likelihood thought he was helping Job. Have you ever been attacked by a friend or felt like you were attacked by a friend and they thought they were helping you? The problem with Job's friend's help is that it was rooted in its own flawed faith. It was a simplistic, one-dimensional, incomplete narrative. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we dig in here, I need to pray. I, there is no possible way that I can impart wisdom to anybody. And so we need God to do something here this morning. Do you come to church hungry and thirsty that God will do something with you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
we are weak. We see this in the book of Job. We see the divine counsel watching. We see the adversary come to you and say, those weaklings, if you took away everything from them, they would curse you to your face. They would fall away. And we look around in the world, Lord, I look around in the world and I'm brokenhearted. You've given us so much in the West, so much. And we treat you as though you're a cosmic genie. We say the right thing, do the right thing, rub the bottle the right way so that we can get what we want to maintain our comfort, to acquire more. Lord, we despise your name and we don't even know it. And yet, you have loved us and you have pursued us. You became one of us in Jesus Christ. And you, en- you endured uh, ill treatment at the hands of those you created, Lord Jesus, and you went to the cross and you despised the shame of it so that you could bring many sons and daughters to glory. It seems, it seems foolish, but it is divine wisdom. And so God, as we, as we open your word this morning, I ask that you would be with my mouth. Hold, even, even, even now, Lord, I feel, uh, I feel destabilized. I feel um, distracted. Lord, would you just hold back anything that you do not want said? And would you speak this morning to all of us? Would you give us wisdom? Would you impart wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Lord, you have said in your word that if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask you. You give liberally, generously, without reproach. And so we are asking for wisdom. Would you speak Holy Spirit, would you impart wisdom that we would grow to maturity, to the fullness of Christ, to his glory and honor and praise. Amen. Okay, so I once wrote an exam. It was a long exam. uh, And... uh, the prof may have been somebody that goes to our church uh, that will remain unnamed, but everybody knows who it is. And I went into the exam, and I, I wrote the exam, and I got done early. I looked at the clock. I was like, wow, this is incredible. I really knew my stuff. And uh, elated, I jumped up, and I skipped over to the professor's desk, and I laid the exam down on his, on his desk and said, thank you so much for a great term. See you at church. No. And I, and I skipped out of there and I waited for my friends because they were still writing. They obviously hadn't studied like I studied. And eventually they came out and there was probably 20 minutes left. And one of my friends came over to me and said, man, that was a long exam. It's like, yeah, I guess if you didn't study. And he said, did you notice Like, what did you get for the third and fourth part of question two, three, and four? And I went, what? (laughs) 
I'd missed half of the instructions for the big middle chunk of the exam. I thought I was done. I thought I did a great job and I thought I was early, but I had an incomplete picture. He said, bro, run back there. Beg him to give you your paper back. And in 20 minutes, do whatever you can. So imagine my elation turning to horror when I realized that I didn't have a complete picture. Imagine the damage that it would have done to my grade if my friend hadn't had a complete picture and pointed it out to me. So I did, I ran back and I asked the prof for the paper. And he said, sure, and he gave it to me like this and I grabbed the edge of it. And he didn't let it go just to see the panic in my eyes. <laughs> we all have horror stories about tests and relationships and public humiliation that originated in someone's incomplete perspective. We all know of horror stories of mistaken identities, medical diagnoses or misdiagnoses, false convictions. We have those horror stories and it's rooted in this idea that, shoot, someone didn't have a complete perspective. False narratives, whether maliciously false or just simplistic or incomplete, are dangerous. Sometimes it's just a matter of taking a hit on the grades. Sometimes the consequences are very low, but at other times the consequences can be very steep. So our narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves about what is real, they shape everything. They shape how we act, how we protect ourselves, how we encourage ourselves, how we motivate ourselves. And, and perhaps more scary than all of that is they shape how we treat other people. And they shape, they shape the impression uh, that we give other people of themselves. They shape the impression that we give other people of reality. They shape the impressions that we give other people of God. It is so important that we have our story built around and submitted to what is true. Because ignorance sets us free, right? Sorry, bliss that comes from ignorance sets us free, right? That's what the world teaches us. What you don't know can't hurt you. No, God's word says the truth sets us free. Life is a battle for the inner person, the mind, the emotion, the will, but the mind is the gatekeeper. And this is why the Bible has so much to say about truth and lies. So in our text today, a bit of an extended introduction because this is an odd text. It's hard to read. It's also hard to preach. In our text today, we're gonna see an interaction between Job and the first of Job's friends to speak. His name is Eliphaz. We're going to see how a false narrative from his friend doesn't actually help him at all. And if he's not discerning, it actually puts him in more bondage than he was already in. We're going to see how Eliphaz's simplistic, incomplete theology shapes his interaction with Job as he suffers terribly. We're going to see how Eliphaz's simplistic, incomplete theology causes him to misdiagnose Job's problem, which then means his assertions just become hurtful. And his solutions are unhelpful. And we'll see that because of Job's response. And then we're going to pull out of this story 
by God's grace, some wisdom to help us move toward a healthy, helpful faith narrative for ourselves, ourselves and for those that we care about. And my hope and my prayer is that someone is set free from the drive of self-salvation. That someone is set free from being under the whip of a narrative that is just not true. And that someone is set free and drops that whip from their hand. So let's jump into chapter four. Job chapter four. Here's what's happening. We're gonna just kind of run through, I'm gonna kind of do this in a couple of parts. We're gonna run through this text. We're not gonna read all of it uh, because then we will be here for a long time. We're just gonna run through this text. I'm gonna highlight what's actually happening here. So so do the digging, move quick with me. I apologize in advance for anything that is frustrating or unclear. Um, You can read it for yourself afterwards. It's in black and white. Um, And that'll be one of the points we have a little bit later on. But here's what's actually happening. So we already know the front part of the story. Uh, The adversary, um, probably the devil, goes to to God and says, hey, you know, look at your servant. Or, well, God says, have you considered my servant? Um, And he's like, yeah, the only reason he, he loves you is because you give him stuff. Okay, um, curse him to, or take all his stuff, he'll curse you to your face. And then God says, okay, you know what? Do your worst. Just don't touch his life. And, uh, and so then all of these things happen. Job loses his family, Job loses his wealth, Job even loses his health. And so his friends come to visit him um, and, 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 and the word says that they came to give him comfort and sympathy. And they sit with him for a whole week And nobody says anything. And we heard last week, uh, if you're comforting somebody, sometimes the best thing that you can just do is just not say anything. Just be there. And if you're you're suffering, lament, cry out. And so that's what Job did. Job cried out. And uh, and in in those days, the custom was that uh, you would let the suffering person start to speak first. And there's wisdom in that. Because then you know they're ready to talk. But, But then once Job finishes speaking, Eliphaz begins to speak. And the general narrative, sort of the pop, the pop uh, sort of mainstream thought process with Job's friends is that their theology is really good. They're just insensitive with it. So two things. One, the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. Number two, their theology is terrible. <laughs> and we're going to look at that. Their theology is actually not good. It's incomplete and it's simplistic, and we're going to look at that. So here's what happens. So, so uh, in 4, chapter 1, Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, and he starts to speak, and this is just really an introduction. He basically says, hey, is it okay for me to speak? Look at verse 2. If, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? He's actually, it's hard to see this in, in English, but he's actually beginning very gently. He's saying, Job, can I say something? I, I kind of feel like I have to. That's how he approaches this. He's, he's cautious. Um, and, then, and then that word, verse three, some of your translations will say, behold. What he's actually saying there is, think back or think how. 
Think how you have instructed many. You have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling and you have made firm the feeble knees. Think, think back. So you've given a lot of people advice. And what he's doing is he's actually setting up. Now it's your turn. Okay, you, you've done it for others. Now it's your turn. And you see, you see in verse five, he says, but now it has come to you and you are impatient or weary. It touches you and you are dismayed. So the trouble that he's advised other people with, now it touches him. And this is, this, this is a soft little rebuke. Eliphaz just basically says, hey, now it's your turn and you're coming apart. What's wrong? And I think sometimes we fail to notice that it's only been a week since he lost everything. So you can already see, like, there's this, there's this insensitivity and incompleteness and simplistic approach in Eliphaz developing. And what's interesting also is essentially that's Satan's accusation. Satan says, take all his stuff. He'll come apart. And Eliphaz goes, whoa, that lament, that was heavy. Dude, you're coming apart. What about all the advice you've given other people? And then he goes and he says, look at verse six. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? It's like, dude, you're coming apart, but don't you trust God? Isn't God your God? And you can already see where this is, this is going south very quickly. And then the next section here, so this is... Uh, this is verses seven through 11. We're not gonna read all of it, but he, he, look at verse seven. Remember, who, is, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? Now we're starting to see his theology even more robustly articulated here. And we're gonna dig into that in a, in a second. And verse eight, as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Sounds biblical, right? What you sow, you also reap. So he's basically saying, hey, remember how things work. Do good things and you'll get good things. Do bad things, you'll get bad things. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? In fact, it even sounds like Proverbs 22, verse eight. Sounds like a number of Proverbs. Anyway, moving on. So, so, so he communicates that. Remember how things work. All you gotta do is do good things, and good things will come. And the implication is bad things have come, and so you've done bad things somewhere. So Eliphaz is moving from effect to cause. And then he moves on. Look at verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Verse 15, a spirit glided past my face. Verse 16 at the end, then I heard a voice. So he has this vision in the night. This apparition comes to him. He can't make out its appearance, but it stands there in a form. And it makes the hair on the back of his neck stand up. And it asks him these questions, more rhetorical questions. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Think through the answer. The implied answer is no. This is the thing with wisdom literature. You gotta think, you gotta think. The implied answer is no. A mortal man cannot be in the right before God and, and, and a man cannot be pure before his maker. And then he goes on in verse 18 and says, 
And it's hard to tell. We don't know whether this is the apparition still speaking or whether this is now Eliphaz just speaking. But either way, it doesn't matter. This is what Eliphaz is communicating to Job. Even in his servants, he puts no trust. And his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay? And jumping down to verse 29, the last, or verse 21, the last line there. Did they not die and that without wisdom? The idea here is that, the idea here is that nothing created pleases God. Nothing can be pure before him. God doesn't put any trust in his servants. God just charges everyone with error. God is hard and exacting. He finds fault. And we as human beings, we just get beat up in this life and then die without wisdom. Like there's just no hope. This is what he's communicating to Job here. And then the next section, verse, or chapter 5 he basically says, hey, who, who else is there for you to turn to? It's God or nothing. You got to get right with God. So you got to repent of whatever sin you've committed. And then look at verse two. He says, surely vexation kills the fool and jealousy slays the simple. He's going, dude, just simmer. This vexation, it's what fools do. It's foolish. Don't be foolish. And jealousy slays the simple. Don't envy, don't envy the comfortable life right now. Don't envy what, sh- what you had Don't envy the former you. Don't envy us. Don't envy people around you. Don't be jealous. That's simple-minded. You just got to get things right with God. The fool loses everything. Verse three, I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. And it's hard not to think of Job hearing that about children being crushed and think, man, why you got to go there? His children were just crushed as a home fell on them. I think Eliphaz thinks he's being helpful still. And he's probably, his tone is probably, hey, bro, like, remember, right? Like, fools do the whole vexation thing. And, and the simple-minded, they do the whole jealousy thing. Just, just, just get right with God, man. And all this will go away. And then he says in verse six, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. In other words, as naturally as sparks just fly up into the air, trouble comes to humans. But it doesn't just grow on trees. That's what he says right there. It doesn't sprout from the ground. It doesn't come from the dust. We do it. Because do good things, get good things. Do what? Bad things get bad things. And then he moves on to a, to a recommendation. So he's, he's gone through kind of an introduction, sets up his rebuke. Hey, man, remember how things work. By the way, this apparition, like God told me that this is the way it works. And then he says some things about God that aren't true, so, right? And, and, and then he basically says, just, just, like, just simmer, man. Like, don't be foolish, and then he goes on to this recommendation. Look at, look at chapter five, verse eight. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. Basically, just go get right with God, man. 
And all these things will be, all these things will be done because, and then verses nine through 16, he just, he just talks about how God is powerful and sovereign. And if you get right with him, he will save you. He will give you rain. He'll send water. He'll set you on high. He'll frustrate the devices of the crafty. He saves the needy. And the poor have hope. And injustice shuts its mouth. So Job, you've done something wrong somewhere. Just own up to it. Go to God. He's just at least. Even if he's hard. Go and make things right. And then, he, and then he spits out another proverb here. Verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. That's almost a direct quotation in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. And we see that again in Hebrews where the author of Hebrews in a fatherly way exhorts people, don't grow weary of the chastening of the Lord. He's doing something with you. And this is what, and this is what Eliphaz says here. He's not wrong in this. But he's got the premise wrong. Job, you gotta repent. You've done something wrong and that's why you're suffering. And it's okay because we're all in the same boat, he says. And then he says, and it's actually a good thing that God reproves us and disciplines us. And then he goes on and he says, because for those he wounds, he binds them up in verse 18. And he'll deliver you and he'll redeem you in verse 20. And he'll protect you in verse 21. And everything in your life will go back to being good. Verse 23 is crazy. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. In other words, all of the created order will be back in your corner. Verse 25, again, just this cringy insensitivity. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many and your descendants as the grass of the earth. Again. And you shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. And then he goes and he says, behold, in verse 27, we have searched out this out. It is true, hear and know it for your good. And you walk through that, there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of truth in that. And then Job responds. And here's how Job actually does this, these next two chapters, six and seven. This first section, Verses two through seven, he basically says, look at, look at verse two. Oh, that my vexation were weighed and all my calamity laid in the balances for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. We just heard about vexation. Vexation comes from fools, right? That's what Eliphaz says. So Job goes, I'm not a fool. My loss and my pain is so great. It is so heavy. There's nothing on earth heavier than it. That's what Job says. Look at the end of verse three there. Therefore, my words have been rash. He says, I was just lamenting. Chapter three, the thing that brought on this response from Eliphaz, it was just a lament. He says, all I'm saying is just, I, I, I wish I wasn't born. I wish I wasn't feeling this. That's all he's saying. He says, I, I, it, it would be better to not have ever had than to have and then lose. That's all I'm saying. That's all he said. If you read chapter three, that's all he said. He was expressing pain. He was speaking from his sore, not his soul. 
And Eliphaz gets on him for that. And then he moves on. He look, at, look at verse 8. Oh, that I might have my request. So he starts with, oh, that my vexation were weighed. And then he says, oh, that my, I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope. And here's his hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. In other words, he's just saying, I just don't want to be alive. He's not suicidal. He's not thinking of taking matters into his own hand. He's asking God to do it. He just doesn't want to be alive. It hurts so much. And there are people that we know, maybe there's some of us in this room, we've, we've cried out that way. It just hurts so much. I just don't want to be alive. And then he says in verse 10, he says, I would even exalt in pain unsparing for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. So he says, I was just lamenting. I didn't say anything untrue. I didn't curse God. I didn't deny, I didn't sin. You keep coming back to this whole sin thing. I didn't sin. And look at verse, look at verse 11. What is my strength that I should wait and what is my end that I should be patient? Verse 12, is my strength the strength of stones? Or is my flesh bronze? He says, I'm human, man. It hurts. Have I any help in me when resources driven from me? He's like, guys, I just, I lost everything. I've got nothing. And that's a great segue into his next thing. Then he throws a proverb at Eliphaz. Eliphaz has all these proverbs. He throws a proverb at Eliphaz. Look at verse 14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. You like apples? How do you like them apples? Get off my back. Verse 13, I have no resource. There's no help for me. And then he goes and says, basically, I don't even have friends. You're withholding kindness from a friend. You're accusing me of sin. You're forsaking the fear of the Almighty like Job knows something about God that they don't know. And he goes in verse 15, my brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed. And essentially paints the picture of them disappearing. You see that in verse 17. They're just gone. Trial comes and they're gone. Then you get to uh, look down at verse 21. For you have become nothing. He's saying this to Eliphaz. You've become nothing. You came all this way to give me sympathy and comfort and you've become Nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid, and this is really insightful. These guys know each other well. You're afraid because if I'm suffering for no reason, then there's no way that you can avoid it for yourself. You have to make sure that I suffer for sin. You have to make it somehow about what I've done so you can control your own life. And then he says in verse 22, have I said, make me a gift? He's like, and he goes on and says some other things. He's like, I, I haven't asked you for anything. Verse 24, teach me and I'll be silent. Make me understand how I've gone astray. And then he says, this is just so profound. How forceful are upright words. He says, you're saying some true things. It's hitting me hard. 
how forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? In other words, like, what are you correcting, though? I haven't said anything wrong. And you don't see anything in my life that's wrong either, so you're reproving me, but what are you reproving? What are you correcting? Verse 26, do you think that you can reprove words? When the speech of a despairing man is wind? Memorize this verse. Do you think you can reprove words? All I did, bro, was lament. I cried out and said, this is how I feel. I didn't say anything wrong. I didn't sin. You're going to reprove those words? This is how I feel. It's wind. It goes out there. It's gone. And it carries with it some of my pain, so I have some comfort. Do you think you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? It's all he's got. And sometimes when we're in despair, that's all we've got. God, I just, this, this hurts. And we're not talking like our prime minister with missing Christmas. It sucks. This is not a sales pitch. And then look at over uh, in verse 28. Oh, sorry, verse, I'm going to hit verse 27. I wasn't going to, but then Job says, you would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. He knows something of them. He knows something. Well, were they really there for comfort and sympathy or was that part of the custom? Are they used to giving people instruction and advice? And so they're just going to do that for the, for the sage, the great one. And he says, now be pleased to look at me. I will not lie to, lie to your face. There's another plea. I'm, I'm upright. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. He says, please stop accusing me. He's just like, stop. And he says in verse 30, is there any injustice on my tongue? Again, I'm upright. You haven't heard anything. You haven't seen anything. Stop. And then he says, cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? He says, don't you think I, like I have kind of a track record here. Don't you think I, ha- I might have some sense of what's going on? Like you've seen me repent in the past. You've seen the offerings I make on behalf of my children and myself. Like you've seen this. Like repentance is not something that I'm running from. And then he goes through, and the whole rest of this thing is he just basically says, yeah, man has a hard service on the earth. And so I'm just allotted my months of emptiness, verse 3. The nights of misery are apportioned to me. I'm just getting what everyone gets. I haven't done anything wrong. And I'm tired, verse 4 of chapter 7. I'm gross, and I'm in pain. My flesh is clothed, chapter 5, with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. And then he goes on and just basically says, I'm dying quickly. And then look at verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So he just basically says, so I'm going to lament. I'm going to lament. Don't tell me to be quiet. Because remember, that's what Eliphaz said, it comes to you and all of a sudden you're whining about it. Just trust God, man.
and then he turns to God. And I can't stand up here and say, do what Job does here. And Job has to repent in the end. But he goes to God, and that I can say we must do when we're in pain. And for those who are suffering in front of us, we must lead them to the Lord. And I don't mean in a conversion sense. I just mean we must bring them to the comforter, and we must paint an accurate an accurate picture of him. So he says, he says, God, why have you set a guard over me? Verse 12. Verse 14, you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions. 16, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. And then he goes and he just says, verses 17 through 21, why are you making so much of man that you set your heart on him and test him every moment? says, if, I, if I've sinned, what do I do to you? Like, am I that big a deal that I do something that I don't even know I've done and you just hammer me like this? Why have I become a burden to you, verse 20, verse 21? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? See, that's the God that Job knows. And then he says, but now I'm gonna die. You'll seek me, but I will not be here. And so he just ends in despair. So we see this interaction, and the one thing that, to be honest, I wasn't exactly sure how to preach this message, but the one thing that just reverberates around these four chapters is that a simplistic, incomplete theology misdiagnoses the problem. And where there's a misdiagnosed problem, solutions are hard to come by and it messes up people that God loves. So in the next couple of minutes, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna walk through some of these really, really quick. I'm keeping my eye on the time because I don't have it back there. Um, so look, look again at verse six of chapter four. So jump back, and we're gonna look at how, we're gonna look at the theology the simplistic and, and incomplete theology that sets up Job's abuse of his friend. And, and I want to reiterate, I don't think Eliphaz is being mean here. I don't think he's being cruel. I just think he's clueless. Because he's got a narrative, he's got a worldview that is, that is, that is only half there. So look at verse 6 of chapter 4. Here's part of the misdiagnosis. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? The answer should be no. Our confidence and our hope do not come from our work. Look at it there. Is not your fear of God your confidence? In other words, is not your piety your confidence? It should not be. And the next line, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. You've done a lot of good things. I'm a good person. This should not be your hope. So he makes confidence and hope about our work. Look at verses seven and eight. Remember, who, was, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, 
those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So here's the other problem. Do good things get good things, do bad things get bad things is not always true. There's a reason in the, in, the, in the order of writing and in the order of the Hebrew Bible, and even in, our, in the order of our Bible to some degree, it goes like this. It goes like this. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. Proverbs is all of these pithy sayings, like, but they're generalizations. In general, this is the way things ought to work. So make wise decisions. Because if you make foolish decisions, this is in general what happens. And then Job is next to basically say those Proverbs are not the gospel. Those Proverbs do not save us because they don't always work. Job's friends did not have a category for a righteous person suffering. They were very unnuanced, very simplistic, reductionist, and that's damaging. And then Ecclesiastes follows, and Ecclesiastes, so if Proverbs is like, hey, here's how the things should work, Ecclesiastes comes along and says, by the way, none of that stuff actually happens regularly. We, we must live in biblical tension. We have to be okay with that. And then look at uh, 5 verse 17. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. And after all the stuff that came before that, his thing is that God is reproving and disciplining Job. So those first two issues that came from just a simplistic, one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter application of a proverb, one of which was just not even true, sets up this idea that Job is being reproved and disciplined. And that's not actually what's happen, happening. He's being sanctified, but he's not being disciplined or punished or, or corrected. He's done nothing wrong. Okay, so those are some of the misdiagnoses. We can spend a lot more time on that, but we don't have the time. Uh, second thing is these misdiagnoses miss helpful solutions. Uh, look at 417. Can mortal man be made right or be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Eliphaz's theology says no. Humans cannot be considered right or pure before God. And more than that, um, 18 through 21, even his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more are those who dwell in houses of clay? Even more than that, God is hard, unyielding, and he's a fault finder. In other words, he's saying there's, there's actually no hope. There's actually no hope. And that is not the message of, that is not God's message to humanity. God has been working through history toward redemption. So uh, a simplistic, incomplete theology misdiagnoses the problem, misses helpful solutions, and then messes up people that God loves. Eliphaz accuses Job of being a fool and being simple. And Job says, I'm not a fool. My pain is so heavy, I'm just vocalizing that I'm in need. Job says, I'm, and I'm innocent. I haven't sinned, I haven't denied God's word. Nothing I, I said was sinful. And then an incomplete, simplistic theology also stops up healthy outlets like lament 
and friendly comfort. Job just basically said, all I'm doing is lamenting. And you're not being a friend to me because you're reproving me for things in my words. And there's nothing there and there's nothing in my actions. And so he finally just goes, you know what? I basically don't have any friends. You've all disappeared. And, uh, and I'm going to lament anyway. And then a simplistic, incomplete theology also carries with it really hurtful insinuations. Remember how Eliphaz went after Job's kids. The insinuation is that your kids are dead because they were also sinning somehow. And you're sinning somehow. Okay. Three quick points, because I, I really wrestled with this. This was like super heavy. And I'm like, Lord, how do I put up, how do I do something positive through this and leave everybody on a positive note? So if we want to be helpful to those who are suffering, we really need to, one, seek God for wisdom rather than seek knowledge and lean on our own understanding. We've got we've to dig for gold rather than rake for leaves. Okay, so we need to diligently seek wisdoms. Proverbs 4, the book where all the Proverbs come from, starts off just the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. The book of Proverbs, the book of formulas, doesn't even start off that way. It says, beware the formula. This is about wisdom. So we need to develop a more complete, more nuanced theology. And you know what? The only way to do that, you got to know your Bible. Know the word. Know the word. Say it with me. Know the word. One more time. Know the word. You got to know the word. And it's not about just reading it or listening to it while you're falling asleep. You can't go over it with a rake or all you'll get is leaves. You got to get a shovel and get in and dig. Does it matter to you? It matters when you're suffering. We need to get in and dig. Deuteronomy 8 says that, that, um, that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? We must be people of the book. We must sit at Jesus' feet and be imparted with his wisdom and authority and power and character. We must. And we need to cultivate humility in everything. This idea of, I, I don't know why you're suffering. I don't see everything. I'm not God. The number of times we hear people say, hey, here's what's going on. And the truth is, we don't know. We very rarely know. And so that's why we need wisdom. I want to I also just notice Eliphaz's appeal to authority. Look at 4 verse 8. We'll go through this quickly. 4 verse 8. As I have seen. As I have seen. He's relying on his own sight, his self. Look at 12. A word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received whisper of it. Then I heard a voice. I know things. God told me then why doesn't it align with God's word? 
we must be very careful with God told me. Or I know things. I have a sense. I have the gift of discernment. Do you? Then don't use that line. (laughs) Who can argue with God told me? And then look at 5 verse 27. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. There's the appeal to the majority. Some people came and told me they're not happy with, oh, who? (laughs) Right? We. So we must seek God for wisdom rather than seek knowledge and lean on our own understanding. God's word, not my experience or sense. God's authority, not my authority or the authority of the majority. And if you need wisdom, ask. God gives generously to all who ask without reproach. Number two, to be helpful to someone who is suffering, I must listen for understanding rather than my next speech or rather than to glean facts to use in my next speech. Eliphaz totally misses Job's lament. He was focused on reproving Job. I got something for you, Job, when you're done. And we do that all the time. We don't hear the person. When we don't hear the person, they know it. When we hear what we want to hear, they know it, and it frustrates them and hurts them. So when we listen, actually, here's a quotation. When you listen more than you talk, eventually you become popular everywhere you go. And after a while, you know something. (laughs) So let's listen for understanding rather than just for my next speech. Uh, David Augsburger, this might be the thing to take out of this whole thing, uh, who's an author and scholar down in the States, he says this, being heard, listen carefully, listen for understanding, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. And then we need to be fluent in the gospel. To be really helpful to someone who's suffering, I must become fluent in the gospel. Become fluent. 4 verse 6. Is not your fear of God, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? No. Jesus is our confidence and his fear of God is our confidence. Is the integrity of your ways your hope? No, Jesus is our hope. The integrity of his ways is our hope. Who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? Well, Jesus was innocent and he perished and he was cut off. And that was what paid for our sins so that we don't have to perish and be cut off. Can a mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Well, Jesus was without sin and in the right before God, and so we as mortal men and women can be in the right before God and can be declared pure before our maker. God doesn't put trust in his servants or his angels. He charges with errors. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay? Well, God has utter confidence in Jesus, the suffering servant, so that we are not charged with error, but are invited into this trust as beloved children who can serve him without fear. 
Because Jesus has suffered, we can lament and cry out to our sympathetic high priest who intercedes for us and carries our burdens. Because Jesus is alive, we have everything we need for life and godliness to be able to persevere through trials in this life as we press on to the next life where there will be no trials. And this whole thing about, you know, whoever withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of God. In Jesus, we have a friend who never leaves and will never withhold kindness, who, uh, who does not accuse us, whose words are life-giving, and who's given us everything. Jesus explodes everything that Eliphaz said. We must know the gospel so that we can minister to the suffering. We must be fluent in the gospel. It's not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I'm going to redeem Eliphaz's last words here in 5 verse 27. And I'm going to say everything that we've just talked about with Jesus, fulfilling all of those things that Eliphaz was using against Job. Have we not searched this out in the scriptures? It is true. Hear it and know it for your good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I see a screen on. Thank you, God, for caring about the little things. Thank you for giving us access to a nuanced, more complete picture of what is real, what is true. We recognize that the truth is a person. Help us to see him. Help us to chase him. And impart to us wisdom, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Um, what I'll do, now that I see the time, we will um, dismiss. Um, <laughs> those who are at the back maybe go first. Uh, and um, yeah, go in God's peace and pursue wisdom. Put down the rake, pick up the shovel. Uh, God wants to use you to to minister to a suffering world. God bless.